Tonight, as we begin week five of our time together, as we look at this at Methodism and the United Methodist Church, we've talked about the place of Methodism within church history, that we're located within the, the Western tradition, uh, then the Protestant tradition, and specifically the Anglican, the English Protestant tradition, and, and that Methodism rose up as a renewal movement. It rose up as a renewal movement within an established church called the Church of England. And it was raised up by John Wesley and his brothers Charles that God used them as a way to reform and renew the church as part of a greater pattern of evangelical revival of the 18th century. We're not the only evangelical revival in the 18th century, but it was a major one in Britain, which then became a major one in the United States. We talked about how the, revi the revival movement of Methodism with its disciplined, with its emphasis on disciplined spiritual life and growth in the spirit and that grace can not only save us from an eternity separated from God and hell, but can also make us into that which God has created us and desires us to be. That God's grace renews us. That, save, that to be saved for a Methodist not only means that we can go to heaven when we die, though it does mean that, but it also means uh, that heaven can come and be in us today. And so that insight was the foundation of Methodism, the, the foundation that, that God can, can move and change in our hearts. Wesley re frequently referred to the religion of the heart. And so we'll talk about that a little bit today too. And we talked about how uh, Methodism is, is, is a movement that is centered in the idea of grace, that of God's grace that exists from before we're born until after we die. And we talked about that, that as, last week as Methodists we believe in being organized. We believe that spiritual growth happens best when we are in disciplined, organized ways. And that as Methodists we organize our spiritual lives, we also organize our church. We organize our church at multiple levels because we don't just look to make disciples of Jesus just in this room or in Danville. We look to make disciples of Jesus around the world. And so we, we have a worldwide, uh, we have a worldwide church in the United Methodist Church. And it is organized at different levels. And we talked about those levels of general conference, jurisdictional conference or central conferences, annual conferences at the state level, district, and then local charge and church conferences. And, and we talked about how organization is important, that we have a method to how we do things. We don't believe disciples are, we believe God makes a disciple, not us, but we believe we can create the environment to make disciples. That is so key to Methodism. It's a disciple-making movement. And, and one of the best things is in the last 20 years, we have, we have kind of rediscovered that. We haven't necessarily done it with absolute e exceptional result. But we are rediscovering that the goal of Methodism is not to be a church, but to make disciples. The goal of Methodism is not to maintain the structure, uh, but that the structure would help us to make disciples. And so we talked about that. So my and so we talked about that structure is important, that method is important. But then the question comes up: So what do Methodists believe? You know, some of you have probably waited the whole class to, for an answer to that question. And uh, because we are different, and, and, and I've said many times, and many of you have even asked, you know, what do Methodists believe? Because in many traditions, many traditions began out of an insight of what they believe. For example, our Baptist friends, 
the insight that launched the Baptist movement that is around the world, that is a tremendous movement, is the insight that says, you know what, just because someone baptized you as a baby doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian. And those of you, and I know some of you grew up in a Baptist church, you, that was, that, that's important. The idea that, you know, you, that, that you, you know, and, and, for, and, and, that, and that emphasis, you're like, well, and you're sitting there like, wait, do we believe that, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> because that, that emphasis has also, uh, was something that was needed to be rediscovered. Now, does baptism, uh, is baptism a sign of God's acceptance of you? Yes, we'll talk about that in a minute. But... Because in, in, in Europe, if you were born, you were baptized. For example, uh, we do not know the date of birth of William Shakespeare. Did you know that? What we do know about William Shakespeare was the date of his baptism. And that was the equivalent of a birth certificate in the 16th century. So if you weren't baptized, they didn't know when you were born. There was no department of vital records and statistics. So, so everyone was born. If you were in England, you were baptized in the church. If you were in Italy, you were baptized in the church, the Roman Catholic Church. And, and baptism had become kind of a, 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 a mark of, of citizenship. And Baptists said, no, that's not how it works. Lutherans, we talked about Luther. What's the great, the great uh, recognition of Luther is we can be justified not by what we do or what we pay, but by the grace of God, justification and by faith, justification by faith. That's the great emphasis of Luther. But Methodism has no real great, the it was not a theological or doctrinal awakening. What it was was an awakening uh, of, of more of how we do things. And so what happens then is, is we say, hey, well, these other ones, they, they really emphasize what they believe, but we don't. And so that leads many people to say, well, Methodists don't believe anything. And that was there for a while, kind of a common thing, where it says, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as it's how you come to what you believe, that, that the method matters. And Chris is going to talk a little bit about the, a method called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral next week. That was not part of the original historic Methodism, but it is key to a contemporary understanding of how United Methodists do theology. And so for a while it was, it didn't matter what you believe, as long as you use scripture, tradition, reason, experience to get there. Well, it turns out if you use one of those things, at least you can get anywhere with it. Uh, and so, uh, so, so are there things that we believe as United Methodists? And the answer is yes. United Methodists have doctrinal standards. But they are not as as simple and as short as many other churches, I'll be honest. Uh, if you look at most church websites, particularly non-United Methodist churches at the top, it'll probably say, you know, it might say who their, who their pastors and their staff are and their worship times, and they'll say what we believe. And they'll list, and there'll be seven bullet points or eight bullet points of things they believe. And that's a good thing. Uh, but for, for United Methodists, our, our heritage... Um, comes over time, and our doctrinal beliefs are a little lengthier. I gave you a handout. It's 11 pages, and this summarizes what we call the doctrinal standards of the United Methodist Church. So I want to talk about those tonight, and we're going to talk about that, and those are in this book called the Book of Discipline. This is a, a book, and it's, it's been burgundy for a while, and we, every four years after the General Conference, the General Conference is the only organization that can make changes to this book. And so when they do make changes, every four years they print a, a new one. 
And uh, we, we have this. And the book of discipline, uh, for the most part, most of us know it is the place, uh, some will know it is the place where our stance on social issues are kept, called the social principles. But the most of it is, we think of it as the ways we organize the various levels of the church. The rules for ordination are in the book of discipline. The rules for local churches. So the committees we have at Centenary, for the most part, are set down because those are the committees required in the Book of Discipline. We have trustees. We have a finance committee. We have a church council. We have a um, staff par pastor parish relations. We have a nominations committee. And those are committees. We didn't invent those committees here at Centenary. Those are committees that are, that are part of the structure for United Methodists. If you go to the United Methodist Church in Harrodsburg, they have those committees. If you go to the United Methodist Church in Sacramento, they have those committees. If you go to the United Methodist Church in Miami, you get the idea, right? And so much of it is how it's organized because we think that's important because we believe in organization. We believe in an organized way to make disciples. But, but we actually begin in the Book of Discipline with our doctrinal standards, what we believe, because we believe that what we believe matters. Uh, doctrine is a big, heavy word. Doctrine seems like a word, you know, you use it like a weight, you know, bam, doctrine, right? Uh, but that's not what it's about. I hope I didn't damage this. Uh, <laughs> right, doctrine, you're like, you know, that violates our doctrine. You know, that's somewhere between and, you know, Get me the kindling wood and tie him to the stake. You know, it 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 it, it has that that uh, that ring to us. But doctrine is just a word that means teaching. It just means teaching. Uh, doctrine is comes from the same Latin word as doctor. A doctor. We think of, a doctor historically is not necessarily aligned with medicine. If if uh, you were to say you know he is a doctor, we're probably talking about someone who practices medicine today. But the historic meaning of doctor is simply one who is a teacher. Uh, the great theologians of the church were named doctors of the church. A doctor is a teacher. Even today when we think of it as a doctor, someone who has a doctorate, is someone who has studied it enough where they can teach others. Now certainly you don't necessarily need a doctorate to be able to teach others. But we say, you know, if you have a doctorate, you've mastered the field such that you, you, can, you can teach others. And so doctrine is that which we teach Will Willimon, who is a kind of outspoken bishop in the United Methodist Church, was dean of Duke Chapel for many years at Duke University. He said, doctrine is that which we find to be the most interesting things about God. Doctrine are the things that we think are worth teaching, uh, the things that are worth believing. So we have doctrinal standards. Now the question is, I've got 11 pages here, and actually the last half page are just links to other things that are longer. And so the question always becomes, do I have to believe all this do, to, be a, to be a Christian or to be a United Methodist? When I, do I need to go home and, and highlight what I may or may not believe in these 11 pages? The answer is no, but I do have to believe them. <laughs> when you join the church, what do we ask you? Did you know when, when, people join, when people profess faith in Christ... We ask them what they believe. What we ask you to believe when you join the church is, do you affirm the Apostles' Creed? And so, what, and, and, and that's why we believe the Apostles' Creed is important to say. It is the creed of baptism. I'm kind of getting a little off the United, but, but as far as when, when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ his only Son, our Lord, that creed, that's what we ask people who are baptized who join Centenary, do you believe that? Because we believe, as United Methodists, we do not have unique beliefs. 
Uh, we believe what the Bible teaches, what the church has always taught. We believe in that great central orthodox stream of theology. And so we say at the center of what we believe, what we ask people who join the church to believe is, do you believe the Apostles' Creed? And that's, that's what, and, and someday we may have a class on that, but, but that is not tonight. And what we here see in the doctrinal standards is we hope nothing that conflicts with that. But what we see here is a way that we try to unpack those, try to explain those. And so our, our fundamental belief, and, and, when, uh, and the, the, these doctrinal standards, which we'll talk about in a minute, when I was ordained, when Pastor Chris was ordained, or Quentin, or Mike, or any pastor you know was ordained in the United Methodist Church, we were asked, have you studied the doctrinal standards of the United Methodist Church? And the answer is, yes. After studying them, do you believe that they are in harmony with the Holy Scriptures? Yes. Will you preach and teach them? Yes. That's what we're asked, is these standards, do we believe them, and will we teach them? Do we, do we, and, and not just do we believe them. I love it. It's even better than that. Because we didn't say, do you think they're a good idea? No, what do we say? We ask, do you believe they're in harmony with what God's Word says? That's important there. And, uh, and, and so we believe God's Word, and we say, hey, do we believe what we teach is in accordance with that? And we say, yes. So the, so the doctrinal standards, the United Methodist Church was founded in 1968. You're like, wait, I thought we go back further than that. Nineteen sixty-eight was it because the United Methodist Church together is the merger of two major groups. One is called the Methodist Church, and one was called the Evangelical United Brethren. So the Methodist Church, we've talked a lot about that part of our heritage because, to be totally honest with you, for all of, for in this part of the country, our heritage of the United Methodist Church comes almost entirely through the Methodist Church tradition. But uh, and and that's the tradition that comes from Wesley. Asbury, down that way, we talked about how the Methodist Protestants split off over laity and leadership, and then the North and the South separated, and then in 1939, those three branches came back together. That's on one side. On the other side are a group of Germans that come out of that, what they call the Pietist tradition. You're like, what's that? That's the tradition the Moravians are in. Wesley, I don't know if he would have considered himself this, was in some way an English Pietist. But there were some Germans, one of them was Albright, Otterbein. Uh, you'll see, and I grew up in central Ohio where there is a college called Otterbein College. Now, I have a, now, Otterbein College was not part of the Methodist tradition. It was actually part of the Evangelical United Brethren tradition. And so that tradition of German pietists that were influenced by Wesley, but they were also influenced by some of the German Reformed thinking, uh, the continental thinking, and so, and uh, so they came together, and they were a similar denomination, and they they were smaller than the the Methodist Church by quite a bit, but they were very popular. Like where I grew up in Ohio, in the Midwest, um, in Ohio where I grew up, uh, some of and and uh, some somewhat along the Ohio River, I think in Kentucky we had a couple in Louisville and a couple in North in Covington that were Evangelical United Brethren churches. West Virginia, I, I believe, had a fairly strong evangelical United Brethren tradition as well. Uh, in fact, in Ohio, where I grew up, there would be towns, I can think of uh, Findlay, Ohio, which is about 50,000 people. Um, and in Findlay, Ohio, there are today three United Methodist churches within three blocks of each other. And they're all centenary size or larger. 
they're three large churches, and they sit like two blocks apart because one was an old Methodist church and two were old Evangelical United Brethren churches, which Evangelical United Brethren were themselves a merger of the Evangelicals and the United Brethren in like the, I think the 30s. So there were, so like prior, so like 100 years ago, there were those three churches were in three different denominations and now they're together in one denomination. United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio comes out of that Evangelical United Brethren tradition. And I'm like, and you're like, why do you explain this to me? Well, so in 1968, when they came together, they had two traditions that had two uh, that had two what we believe statements. And for better or for worse, what they decided to do is they could not decide how to put them together. So they said, well, we accept both of them. And so both the statements of the EUB Church and of the Methodist Church are considered to be doctrinal standards of the United Methodist Church. The, the standard of the Methodist Church is called the Articles of Religion. Uh, Chris and I have mentioned before that the, the Anglican Church had what they called the 39 Articles of Faith, and Wesley abridged them, edited them when the, United, when the Methodist, church, Methodist Episcopal Church became an independent church in the United States. Remember I said when it became an independent church, for Wesley a church ought to have a system of what they believe, and they ought to have a system of how they worship. And so Wesley sent both of them to America. It said, here is your what we believe, and here is your how we worship. The how we worship was discarded in about five years. But the what we believe has, stand, has stood. rather, And in fact, it is the one part we cannot alter in the Book of Discipline. No majority of the General Conference can change what we believe about the incarnation of our Lord. Uh, no, uh, no vote can change what we believe about the Bible. And, uh, and, and that's probably a good thing. Um, but uh, we, so we have these, these traditions. And so when we look at them in the Articles of Religion, and then after that it's called the Confession of Faith of the Evangelical United Brethren Church, we see a lot of things uh, that are similar. I'm going to look a lot at the Articles of Religion because they're in some ways ones that are more difficult to understand. The, uh, the Confession of Faith was actually written uh, only just a few years before the merger. And it's a more modern confession than the Methodist Articles of Religion. When he edited them, he did not add anything that was particularly Methodist to them. So when you read them, you'll read them and you'll think, gee, we've talked a lot about what's kind of uniquely Methodist. I don't see anything about that in these. This just sounds pretty typical. Because that's what, it's kind of Methodist. We say, hey, our stand, what we really believe, and we have a hard time with this. Because we can sometimes major in the minors in the method in our tradition. This is the articles of religion are about majoring in the majors. That's what it's about. And so we talk about what's the first thing we say? As Method as United Methodists, we believe in God. We believe in God. And we believe God exists as a Trinity, and that is to say, God in three persons, but one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, as they said in the 18th century. And, uh, and, and, uh, we, and then also in the Confession of Faith says the same thing. We believe in one true, holy, and living God, eternal spirit who is creator, sovereign, and preserver of all things visible and invisible. We believe the one God reveals himself as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct but inseparable, eternally one in essence and power. So, as United Methodists, we believe in God, and we believe God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Next, we believe uh, in Jesus. 
who is the Son, the Word of the Father. We believe Jesus was fully God and fully human. We believe that Jesus lived. We believe Jesus suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried. And by doing that in his death and burial, that we can be reconciled to the Father. That Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for all the sins we commit, past, present, and future. And we believe in the whole and we believe Jesus rose from the dead. This is Article Three. And he sits at the right hand of God, and he will return again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end, as the Nicene Creed puts it. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and of the Son. We believe the Holy Spirit is God just as much as the Father is God or that Jesus is God. We don't believe that there is a Father, a Son, and then somewhere out there a Holy Spirit. We believe they are equal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are three persons in one God. And I'm glossing over that like that's something that is easy for you to understand. If you're sitting there like, that's wild and confusing, that's a good sign. I'm going to say that. That's a good sign. I love the Trinity because the Trinity reminds us that we do not have a God who can be put in a box we can understand. If we can understand it, then it probably wouldn't be greater than us. So I just say that for you, that, that I'm glad we have a God we, we can't really understand, but we can know. You just say there's a difference there? You don't you may not be able to understand God but you can know God. It, the closest thing would be and and this is going to sound terrible. Um men can know women but you may not yet be able to understand them. <laughs> women on the other hand, you may be able to know men but not understand them. I don't know. I I lack that that vantage point. But, but you can, but, but, and think, if that's just humans, think how much more God is. Anyway. So we believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in the scriptures. We believe, what we believe about the scriptures is we believe that the Holy, the Holy Scriptures, it says, containeth all things necessary to salvation. Then in that big question, the ultimate question, what must I do to be saved? The Bible tells us that when it comes to matters of salvation, uh, so that what it says there is he says, you can't add anything to it. If the Bible doesn't say you need it to be saved, you don't need it. You don't have, if some, you don't have to believe anything that's not in the Bible to be saved. Uh, we have no extra beliefs, no extra actions, just what the Bible teaches. That's less than what some churches believe and more than what others believe. We believe when it comes to matters of salvation, the Bible teaches us everything we need to know. We believe that the Bible is Old and New Testament. And we do not believe in the Apocrypha. It gives you a list of books, and what it's basically telling you there is that part that's called the Apocrypha, the Deuterocanonical books. That's a fancy way of saying it. Second book books. Um, we, we, we believe those might be interesting, they might be edifying, but they are not part of Holy Scripture. 
Uh, so some Bibles you'll see they'll say, you know, such and such version with the Apocrypha. You can go ahead and buy that. It's no bit you can buy it. But but we don't believe that those books teach you what you need to know to be saved. Um, that there may be good things in there, but you don't need them to to be saved. So a lot of these come out of the Protestant Reformation. Some of these we'll talk about, and we'll talk about some more, and they are classically... For example, our view on the Scripture is really more contra Rome. It's saying, you know, they can't say, well, you have to have the sacraments to be saved. So does the Bible teach us you have to have the sacraments to be saved? If, if the Bible doesn't say that, you don't have to have them. Can someone be saved without being baptized? The answer is yes. Is that the ordinary course of things? No. But can we require you to be baptized to be saved? If the Bible doesn't require you to be baptized to be saved, no, we can't do that. We don't have the right to do that. So a lot, of, and with this is, then in the uh, Protestant Reformation, Protestants um, took the side of no apocrypha. And then as, and the Church of England took that side, and Wesley then imports that, downloads that to the Methodist Church. He talks about the, oh, uh, the, um, the, uh, and then the, art, the Confession of Faith, the EUB, basically teaches the same thing. Uh, in fact, there's an article about the Old Testament. So uh, the, have you ever heard some people say, well, the Old Testament is about this, but the New Testament is about that, like they're different. We don't believe that. We reject that the Old and New. It, say, it says the Old Testament is not contrary to the New, for in both the Old and New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. Uh, and then in addition, it says, what about the law of Moses? The law of Moses given is not binding when it comes to the ceremonial law, the ritual law, However, the Old Testament laws that are moral laws are still binding upon Christians. So when the Old Testament, you say, well, the Old Testament, the Old Testament says all kinds of crazy things. It says that if you wear a shirt that is part polyester and part cotton, you're supposed to be stoned to death, I hear. Well, that falls under the ceremonial law. But there are other parts of the law that are moral. And it says here, that we are not free from the moral law. The moral law exists, uh, exists, Wesley would teach for, th the, the, the reformers and Wesley taught for three purposes. One, it was a mirror to show us our need for a savior. Uh, two, it was to bind our basest instincts. Uh, for example, our instinct to murder people. The law says, you know, that's a bad idea. Don't murder. And the third is to train us in righteousness. To say that, hey, if we're born again, if we're followers of Jesus, this is, an, this is how we ought to live. Do, is following the Ten Commandments going to cause you to be saved? No. But if you are saved, are you going to follow the Ten Commandments? Are you going to put God before all else? Are you going to honor your parents? Are you going to not steal, not lie, not commit adultery, not murder? Are you going to do all those things? Well, yeah, you're going to follow the, the law. So, but, but naturally, without God, are you able to do those things? Well, no, and it shows that, no, that you're not going to be able to, and that's the purpose of law. Talks about original sin. I'm convinced original, this is my, you don't have to believe this, but I think it's true. 
I believe a lack of belief in original sin is the cause of 99% of the struggles we have in the United Methodist Church. Original sin is uh, the idea that people are by nature not righteous, not holy, that uh, the way people are, needs to, that we need to be saved. That's central. People said, do Methodists believe, he said, and people asked Wesley, is that a Methodist belief? He said, no, that's a Christian belief. In fact, he said, if you reject original sin, you are but a heathen still. I tend to talk a lot about original sin because it is, I think it was Niebuhr who said, it is the one empirically verifiable doctrine the Christian church teaches. Do you know what that means? It's the one doctrine you can tell just by looking around. Have any of you watched cable news today? Just saying, original sin. You can go that on whatever side you want. Take, 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 a, take your, but original, original sin. And the contrary of original sin is the idea that basically we're born kind of free and that we can be, that, that we can be influenced to do good or to do evil and that we have the total perfect freedom to do good and to do bad. And, uh, and what, he, what it says here is, it is the corruption of nature of every man following after Adam and that by nature we are taken away from original righteousness and we are inclined to do evil and that continually. That is about as politically incorrect as any teaching of the Christian church gets. The idea that somehow you are not the master of your own end, but that you are by nature turned inward toward yourself, toward selfishness, and toward greed. Um, and that we need a savior to help us. That's the basis of, is original sin the most important doctrine the church teaches? No, it is not. Is it the most important word about humanity? It is not. But is it a word about humanity? It is. And it's one that I think we can, I think, uh, we can kind of understand in ourselves. You know, it's that thing that Paul says in Romans 7. He says, the things I want to do, I don't do. But the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. That's original sin. Now, what we believe is, can, is, uh, can original sin, uh, do we have to be stuck with original sin forever in us? And the answer is no, that, that the Spirit can move in our hearts and transform us. We may start there, but we don't necessarily have to end there. That's original sin. That is something we believe as, uh, as, united, as united Methodists. Um, it, it, the, the Article 7 of the Evangelical, the EUB Confession of Faith reminds us, in his own strength, without grace, man cannot do good works pleasing and acceptable to God. We believe, however, man influenced and empowered by the Holy Spirit is responsible in freedom to exercise his will for good. How do we have free will? We have free will because our free will is enabled by the grace of God. The ability for you, for, for some, you say, because you say, hey, I know someone who's not a Christian. They say they don't believe in God, but yet they don't always do bad things. They do some good things. And that's, that's provenient grace. That's God's grace that has unlocked the ability for them to do good and unlocked the ability for them to see God and to respond to God's grace. Uh, God's grace enables us uh, to, uh, to respond. So of the justification of man, that's a great title, and saying we are accounted righteous before God, not by our own merits, but by the merits of Jesus. That when we believe in Jesus, that uh, God looks at us. I think Ron shared this a few weeks ago. When he looks at us, he sees not our failures, but sees 
the goodness of, of Jesus. And as Methodists, we believe that God not only can see us that way, but he can actually, by grace, make us that way. That grace can allow us to have, uh, to have to be filled with the same kind of love that Jesus is filled with. And so we're saved by, by Jesus. We receive it by faith, not by works. And we are made right with God only by faith. And that is comforting. It says that. It's comforting. Why is that comforting? See Article 7. <laughs> See Article 7. If we were responsible to save ourselves, we'd be in trouble. Can I say that? But the good news, the gospel says we can be saved not by anything we do, but that there is a God who loved us so much that he offered his son Jesus that we could be right with him. That we're saved not by us, you being saved is not dependent on you. It's dependent on Jesus. Is that comforting? Do you see where the, where, where the, where the reformers and, and Wesley found that to be comforting? Was uh, um, that, that we can be saved. And, and so when we, when we worry that we're not saved, we can look to him. We can look to him. So good works. So so you know, say so, well if good works don't make going so, what's the point of good works? And it says well good works are the fruit of faith. And they follow after we are justified because we believe as Methodists when we are justified when we are made right with God uh, that's not the end. But that it actually changes our hearts. And that instead of doing those things which don't please God now our hearts change so we can do those things that do please God. And those are good works. It was, uh, in fact, I think I mentioned this before, I mentioned this last week or week before, it was John Calvin himself who said, no man is saved by good works, but no man is saved without them. Why? Because good works flow from a life and a heart that has been changed. And we believe that. They are, they, that the good works are pleasing and acceptable when God sees that are the fruit of, the grace, of his grace. And they spring out of a true and lively faith. Inasmuch as by them, by them, a lively faith can be evidently known as a tree is known by its fruit. Article 11 is a work of supererogation. How many of you knew that word before tonight? I'm still not sure I know. And supererogation are works above what God commands. Is there extra credit in the kingdom of God? We say no. Can you do enough good works that God is like, well, you're really on my good side? No. And the, that was, again, another teaching contrary to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. I want to be careful when I say this. So much of this is written in, the, is, these were written in the 16th century, in the 17th century, and they refer to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church of that day. They may not refer to the teachings and practices of the church today. Does that make sense? And so, because the Roman Catholic Church has been has been reformed, and and uh, we as we constantly all of our churches, we are constantly trying to reach closer to what God wants us to be. And then sin after justification. This was something in Article Twelve. 
So the question is, if you are forgiven, are you allowed to sin again? The early church said if you sin after, you're, after you, you receive forgiveness, you've lost it, and you're going to hell. So, so if, you were baptized, if you're baptized, you can't sin after that. Later they said, okay, maybe you can sin once, but that's it. So I have a question. When do you think people were baptized? What? Right before they were going to die. They would wait. They'd be like, we're going to wait, 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 we're going to wait. Okay, now, when I'm pretty sure I won't sin before I die in five minutes, you can baptize me. So a lot of people are baptized on their deathbed. See, this was prior to the rise of, of the, of, this was prior to Christianity. We talked about how Christianity was, used to be a minority religion. They became the religion of the Roman Empire. This was before then. And eventually what they say there is, um, and what we teach there, and you're like, this is totally common sense. Uh, you can be forgiven for sin you commit even now. That God's grace is enough, not just for the sins you've already committed, but that though God's Spirit is transforming you into the likeness of Jesus, if you commit sin, sin after you're justified, which for most of you is probably a good news that this is in here, you can be forgiven. Now, if you sin after you're justified and you sin and sin and sin and you're not sorry and you, you totally depart from the faith, can you lose your can you can you be can you can you lose salvation? Yes. We believe that as, as United Methodists. However, can is there forgiveness for sin? Can can you lose your salvation by simply by, by doing something is wrong? No. You lose it. Uh, by, by losing faith, losing hope, losing trust, not by individual sins that have been committed. <laughs> You're like, I'd really prefer uh, to... Uh, but, um, but, but, that, that, uh, but at the same time, it's saying, hey, it, but I, I will say, do I believe people can lose their salvation? Yes. Do I believe that it is normal and customary for people to? No. Because if Jesus has got a hold of you, he's going to hold on to you. You're going to have to work really hard to get away from him. Um, that's all I could say about that. So of the church, Article 13. The church is a congregation of faithful men and women. Men in the... Look, it's only been in the last 40 years that we, that we, that we didn't, before 40 years ago, when they said men, they usually meant men and women, and I believe they meant men and women here. I believe you can have a church without men, but it's pretty typical churches have both men and women. So it's a congregation of faithful men and women in which the pure word of God is preached and sacraments duly administered. We talk about that church's word and sacrament and its people. And uh, we believe that that's, uh, that's, that's the place. Is, uh, the, um, the, the Article 5 in the Confession of Faith of the, the EUB, Evangelical United Brethren, also say the same thing. They say it is also the redemptive fellowship. And they add something. They say, under the discipline of the Holy Spirit, the church exists for the maintenance of worship, the edification of believers, and the redemption of the world. That used to be in our baptismal liturgy. Some of you may remember that, but uh, it isn't, hasn't been for many years. Article 14, we don't believe in purgatory. 
Article 15, we believe that uh, if you, if you uh, preach in church or pray or have the sacraments, it ought to be in a language understood by the people. It ought to be in English. It ought to be in Spanish. It ought to be in whatever language, the vernacular language. Now, does that preclude that there are sermons people don't understand? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it is the idea that, that uh, this, again, one of those referring to the practices of the medieval Catholic Church to have the liturgy in Latin, uh, which is something the Catholic Church has only changed in the last 60 years. Some of you probably remember growing up and, and, and Roman Catholics worshipped in, in, in Latin. And, and there's actually a, re a, move, a renewal movement uh, of more people worshipping in Latin uh, in, in the Catholic Church today. Is that referring to speaking in tongues? I don't... I would think it would be fair to say I do not... I don't, speak, I don't have the gift of tongues, but I do believe that it is a gift that can be given and is given. Um, the, the question is, I think people who do, I think they would deny that they are having public prayer ministering the sac or ministering the sacraments when they do. Um, I think people would say that they have, they're doing that as a private thing or as the scriptures teach that they're doing that as a way to edify the church and the Bible's, and Paul tells us if someone speaks in tongues, there ought to be an interpreter. Does that make sense? Does, and so that's why it... And I think that that would be in line with what Article... I think that's probably in some ways a really decent justification for Article 15 is the idea that Paul says if, so, if God gives you to speak in another language, that's fine. So, for example, if we were to have an evangelist who spoke Spanish and only Spanish, but was a, we might have them here. You know, we wouldn't be opposed to, but if we had them here, we would probably have a translator. Is that, or if I were to someday preach in Africa where the language was French, I speak... Just a little bit. Sûrement un petit peu de français. Un petit peu. Little bit. Little bit. Uh, but would I preach in French? Probably not. But if I preached in English, they would have a translator. And, and uh, because we believe that the goal of preaching, the goal of prayer, the goal of the sacraments is to edify the people. It's to strengthen their faith. And if you don't know what I'm saying, I'm probably not strengthening your faith. Now, some of my Catholic friends might disagree with me, but that's... As Methodists, that's what we believe. Article 16 of the sacraments. Oh, we could get real deep in here, and I know some of you would like to go home before midnight tonight. I'm going to say two quick things about Methodist view of sacraments. Three quick things. First, United Methodists believe sacraments are something that God does and not something that we do. Sacraments are something that God does. If you're taking notes, write that down. Sacraments are something that God does and not something we do. And that's different. When we celebrate the Holy Communion here, Holy Communion is not, it says in Article 17, 18 rather, is not only a sign of the love that Christians ought to have among themselves. It's not a sign of our remembering. It's not a sign of our connection. That's not what it, the sacrament is a, pro, sacrament is a Latin word meaning promise. And we believe that God promises that when we break the bread and pour the wine, Jesus is with us. That the one who makes the difference of the sacrament is Jesus, and he promises to be with us. Now, the question is, do we receive, do we receive communion? Is, is the body and the blood 
literally body and blood, we reject that. The idea of transubstantiation, we don't believe that. But do we believe that in a spiritual way that the, we, are, we, are, we are coming together with Jesus' body and blood? Yes. And it says the body of Christ is given, taken, and eaten only after a heavenly and spiritual manner. And the means whereby the body of Christ is received and eaten in the supper is faith. It's faith. And so when people come by faith, Jesus promises to be with us. When we remember him, he comes to be with us. And baptism. This is where we get really controversial. Some of you are going to disagree with me. That's okay. We're allowed to do that. Baptism is not a sign of our decision to follow Jesus. It's not only that. That's part of it. But it's not the main thing. The main thing is that baptism is a sign that God has accepted us. That's different from what other churches believe. That's different from what most churches here believe. That is probably the most kind of, but, but it is what the Church of England believed. It's what the Roman Catholic Church believes. It's what Lutheran Church, Presbyterian Church believes. That baptism is a sign that, the water is a sign that we have been washed by God. And so God has acted in baptism. And so that's why we baptize infants. Because if it was about the infant's decision to follow Jesus, that would be a joke. But if it's about God's decision to save people, even before they know it, that's why we baptize children, young children. It says that in Article 17. That's the overview. We can talk about that. Uh, and it, it's just a different, and it, in some ways it's a whole shift in mindset about sacraments. It's what, what God does. We receive communion, both bread and wine. Uh, that's interesting. And you're like, well, of course we do. Well, in the medieval Catholic Church, only the lay people only receive the bread. Why? Because if you believe the, the wine is the literal blood of Jesus, I have watched some of you all spill it on the carpet. I have spilled it on the carpet. That's why we have little rugs, isn't it, Molly? <laughs> I think it's the last 30 years that they've shared they, the cup. And so what we say is, do, does Jesus' blood want to spend eternity uh, matted into one of the little rugs in the sanctuary? And so they say no. And so, and that's why oftentimes Catholics, even today, won't use bread because, you know, we don't really want the body of Jesus to spend eternity in the Hoover bag and in Priscilla's vacuum cleaner. And I'm kind of saying that and kind of being over the top. But the reason I mention this is, is, is to say that we say, hey, we receive, it, is, it is still bread, it is still wine, and we receive by faith. We think we ought to treat it respectfully. That's why we don't pour it down the drain or throw it in the trash. We scatter it outside. But we are also not obsessed with like the little crumbs in the carpet and things like that because we don't believe it is a literal change. But we do believe that by faith, Jesus comes to us uh, in that meal. We also believe Article 20, that's also connected with it. We believe that um, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is once for all times. We believe that um, that sin is paid for on the cross and that we believe that communion is not, uh, we do not represent Jesus' sacrifice. That's a difference from our Roman Catholic friends. 
uh, that we believe we remember that we do not, uh, we do not reenact or represent it uh, to him. And we don't offer that sacrifice on behalf of others. We don't say mass on behalf of other people for the living or the dead. We also believe that ministers are allowed to be married. My favorite article of all, <laughs> Article 21. <laughs> Daryl's favorite article of all. <laughs> And uh, Article uh, 22, uh, we believe that, um, that churches ought to be able to have worship that is fitting to their surrounding areas. And you're like, well, yeah, again, we're connecting to the, rebel the, the Reformation, and they're saying, hey, it does not need to be in the same language no matter where we can adjust based on where we are. However... The basic format of worship, if you believe, if you are, if you're willingly part of a church that has a basic structure for worship, you ought to follow that. And then uh, the rule 23, they kind of altered it for the United States and essentially said that uh, those who are our, who, who are our, you don't want to say rulers, but those who we vote for, our president, Congress, governors, general assemblies, they are, uh, they are the kind of people that when Paul talks about uh, how you ought to live with relation to the, those who govern you, that's who, he, that's who we're talking about. Article 24 says um, that we do not have forced sharing of goods, but we do encourage generosity. So we're, we're not in a commune together, but we do believe that you ought to share generously. 25, uh, we do believe that we can swear oaths. So you can swear on the Bible if you're a public official or you're a witness in a trial. Uh, we do permit that. We added two additional articles in 1939, though they are not part of the official articles, they are, uh, uh, but they are further elaborations. One is on sanctification. That is that Wesleyan ideal that we can be, that we can be cleansed from sin and that we can, live, uh, we can live oriented not toward ourselves, but toward, uh, toward, toward uh, love. And then the final one was added for the benefit of non-Americans, because some of you are like, wait, you, told, you said it was a worldwide church, and then we have something about the United States, and it, it speaks about uh, that, that uh, as Christians, we ought to obey the, obey the laws. <coughs> So that's, I mean, I, I kind of went through that and maybe in a little more detail than I had anticipated uh, for, the, for those. Uh, but that's basically the big picture of what we believe. Now, in some ways, there are some things that are a little different. But for the most part, what we believe is in line with what other Protestant Christians uh, believe. Also, in our, in our, I'll mention three other things toward the back of your packet that are about the doctrinal standards of the church, uh, is the general rules. I've spoken of the general rules. Do no harm, do good, and attend to the ordinances of God. Uh, it mentions there to do, to do no harm is essentially do not sin. Do not take the name of the God in vain. Do not be drunk. Uh, do not hold, buy or sell slaves. Uh, do not put on gold and costly apparel. Do not sing songs or read books which do not tend to the knowledge and love of God. 
Some of you are feeling a little convicted by this. Softness and needless self-indulgence. Well, now I'm feeling convicted. Now, now I'm feeling convicted. Laying up treasure upon earth. Borrowing without a probability of paying. Some interesting versions of what do no harm means. Do good. To do good things. And it gave some examples of what doing good is. It says, do good to your bodies by giving food to the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting those who are sick and in prison. Do souls uh, by to your soul. Do good to your souls by by instructing people of the teachings of the church. Help others and run the race with patience. And thirdly, attend upon the ordinance of God, the public worship of God, the ministry of the word, read and preached, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. Prayer, both individually and with your family. Reading the Bible, searching the scriptures, fasting or abstinence. Those are ways we can open our hearts to the grace of God. And then also our doctrinal standards include Wesley's standard sermons. They're available in book form. There's 50 of them. They're, uh, they're challenging. There's also a, an, an online version if you want to read a couple of those. And then Wesley wrote a little commentary on the New Testament. And we those that's the trickiest one. One, it's funny. It is a doctrinal standard that we believe in his uh, notes on the New Testament, but not his notes on the Old Testament, though he wrote them. Second thing is, Wesley, I'm not sure we necessarily have to agree with every bit of Wesley's theological exegesis. Um, he was not infallible. He was not inerrant. Um, but they are something that was commended to us for a Wesleyan understanding of the scriptures. I brought this little book. This is a little book called by Ted Campbell on Methodist Doctrine, The Essentials. This is kind of an overview of what we talked about tonight, kind of explains some of these, what, we, what we've talked about. And that's a good book if you'd like to know a little more uh, about that uh, tonight. So we've talked a little bit about that we do have doctrinal standards. We've talked about that what we teach matters and that we live within the broad scope and spectrum of the Church of Jesus Christ, especially in its Protestant uh, tradition and its Anglican tradition, and uh, that we believe that what we teach uh, points us to who God is. And as the uh, doctrine of justification says, it is very full of comfort, uh, this God in whom we believe.